worship. It's Psalm 72. And we'll be finishing up Genesis chapter 3 with our sermon text today, so read our call to worship in light of what is in Genesis chapter 3. But Psalm 72 is our call to worship. And thou the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the peoples, the hills, the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. He will endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. He will be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth. In his days, the righteous will flourish. Prosperity will abound till the moon is no more. He will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of distant shores will bring tribute to him. The kings of Sheba and Seba will present him gifts. All kings will bow down to him and all nations will serve him. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from the oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. Let grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. Let its fruit flourish like Lebanon. Let it thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. All nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. This concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Our scripture reading is from Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. The prophet proclaims God's word. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere youth, he who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Bo, can you lead us in prayer? I'm going to ask you not to throw tomatoes at me today. Please hear me out on this one because I'm sure this will spawn many, many conversations afterwards and 
I say everything with, with an ear open for criticism and evaluation. But throughout our look at God's garden in Genesis 2 and 3, I've, I've emphasized my conviction that everything in the original garden is prophetic of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And today we come to a portion of Genesis 3 that is widely recognized as a prophecy of redemption. Uh, Genesis 3.15. And many, many people talk about Genesis 3.15, but I'm convinced that Genesis 3.15 is merely the most obvious part of the entire prophetic aspect of the original garden. And that's why Christians can see Genesis 3.15. Everything that we've looked at from the grace of God to Adam to the forming of the woman from the sight of man, everything in Genesis 2 and 3 is prophetic. Now, if I'm right about that, then we need to read these early chapters of creation as prophecy. And what I mean by that is it comes to us filled with symbolism, metaphor, and in a non-literal sense, in the way we think of literal readings. By nature, it is not a precise literal record of scientific detail. If you think about it this way, who would go to the book of Isaiah, for example, to learn about the scientific operation of our universe? Or the Psalms. You can apply the same basic principles to the Psalms. I mean, I gave, I read Isaiah 65, and there are people out there that go out and read Isaiah 65 and try to figure out how a wolf will be able to lie down with a lamb. And that's really what I, what has come to us is known as a literal reading. And I would suggest you that's a big mistake in Isaiah 65, and I would say the same basic principles apply in Genesis 2 and 3 because we're dealing with the same type of prophetic scriptures. Or the Psalms. I mean, how would you go to the Psalms to try to figure out scientifically how trees clap their hands? There's a metaphor going on there. There's something that's symbolic and very rich that a literal reading will simply miss. It's poetic. It's symbolic. And I believe that all of this begins right here in the Garden of Genesis. Now, by the end of today, I hope you will see why it's so important to recognize the early chapters of Genesis as prophetic and geared toward covenant life and salvation. I really think that's the big theme in Genesis in the Garden. It's covenant life and salvation. A few weeks ago, Bo asked the question, why Christians do not believe in the power of the gospel today? And I really believe that a big answer to that question is that they do not recognize what God has done in Jesus Christ. I mean, we now live in a new heavens, new earth, for we have become made new creatures in Jesus Christ. The New Testament is very clear about that. Prophecy is very clear about that. But Christians don't believe this. And how are we to get the world to believe it if Christians don't believe that? That was Bo's question. How are we going to get the world to believe this, this new world that Jesus Christ came down from heaven to make and did 2,000 years ago, accomplished his purposes? How are we going to get the world to believe that if Christians don't believe that? Well, a big part of the answer to that question of why Christians don't believe that side is because of the mistakes that are made right here in Genesis 3. I'm convinced that if you take Genesis 3, for example, rather than prophetically or symbolically or covenantally, as I've been trying to explain through this garden series, if you take it and read the curse literally, as in dealing with biological things, if you read the curse literally about, for example, physical pain or physical sweat, thorns and thistles, or biological death, then redemption of the new heavens and new earth can't be here yet because we still have these things here. We're still waiting for when all of this stuff is going to be removed. That's redemption. And so the real problem of understanding the, the story of redemption and understanding prophecy begins right here with the understanding of Genesis 2 and 3. A mistake here in the way you approach this text will throw everything off 
down the road. And so what I'm trying to do here is come at this really as Genesis 2 and 3 fits in the entire Bible and present the, present the picture that it presents in, the, in those terms. So let's pick up our text in Genesis 3.14 and let's remember the scene. Jehovah God has returned to the garden to deal with the disobedience of His creatures. So let's pick up in, in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and eat, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring, your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and dust to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Judgment Day. That's what this is. This is the first biblical judgment day. And notice that there are three subjects of judgment in this text. We have the serpent, the woman, and the man. As we go through the pronouncements of judgment here, there's actually a a poetic structure throughout India's entire chapter, but specifically in this pronouncement of the curse. Each of these subjects, the serpent, the woman, and the man, are given four pronouncements of judgment. For example, you have the serpent who is cursed above, are you above all the livestock? That's the first. You will crawl on your belly. That's the second. You will eat dust. That's the third. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's the fourth. Each one of these pronouncements of judgment comes through in four strokes, or four, a four, has four sides to it. And that's important to recognize as a structure because when you get to the prophets, by and large, when the prophets make their pronouncement of God's judgment on the people, they will do it in four strokes. So we have another connection here between prophecy that we see later in the Bible and what we have here in Genesis 3. It's a very interesting say looking at the structure of the prophets in comparison to what we have here in Genesis 3. But what of the curse of the snake, the serpent? You know, A lot of people read this literally and so claim that before this time, snakes had legs, but I think that is, again, to miss the symbolic nature of the text. Notice the very next line, besides the actual crawling on your belly, the very next line is, you will eat dust. Now, literally, do serpents eat dust? I mean, biologically, is that what they live on, dust? No, they eat on insects and small rodents and stuff. So there's something going on here beyond just a literal scientific proclamation about what's going to happen to the serpent. 
but symbolically the snake is condemned to living on the ground where the dust is and where it gets stepped on. That's the key here. The serpent is on the ground where it gets stepped on and it is a perpetual sentence of humiliation and defeat. The licking of the dust here, if you go back and you look at the way licking the dust is presented in Scripture, is about humiliation and defeat. And so what we have here is not necessarily a biological explanation of what's going to happen. What we have here is the Gospel. The victory of the Gospel in the Bible begins with this proclamation. This proclamation declares that God will be the victor over the serpent and the serpent will lick the dust all the days of its life. Notice in verse 15 that God places hatred between the snake and between the woman, between the snake's offspring and her offspring. This suggests that Eve and her line would no longer be in a position to listen to the snake because now they hate each other. And so what you have here really is a curse that separates the serpent from the woman. In fact, if you look at the seed or the offspring aspect of Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. You'll find that actually some of these children are going to be offspring of the woman and some of these children are going to be offspring of the serpent. And so from now on in covenant history, you're going to have two lines. That's really what, what the part of this curse is, is talking about. You're going to have two lines. You're going to have the seed of the woman and you're going to have the seed of the serpent. And I think that's why Eve is called the mother of all living later on in verse 20. Adam renamed Eve in light of what's going to happen between her line and the offspring of Satan. And we actually see this happening very fast in the story because in Genesis chapter 4, we have that, those two lines represented by Cain and Abel. And we know which one was the offspring of the woman. We know which one was the offspring of the serpent. The offspring of the woman was righteous Abel. And the offspring of the serpent was, of course, Cain, who struck his brother, killed his brother, and then God gave Eve, Seth, later in Genesis 4, to replace the one that he, she lost. And I think that's prophetic of the gospel in Jesus Christ because death, burial, and resurrection right there. Abel's brother is the one who killed him. I think that's why Jesus reaches way back into that Genesis 4 story and talks about Abel when we get to the New Testament. He talks about all the righteous blood shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah will come upon this generation. So we have this division right here with this curse in Genesis 15 that runs really through all the rest of Scripture. And we see it right there with the very next story with Cain and Abel. And we see it, of course, in the New Testament as well. And so when we talk about here aiming, Adam naming his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living, it's talking about covenant life. Because it's not talking about biology because we have two lines. And we see later on when we get to the New Testament, Jesus and actually, John the Baptist begins this by calling the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He was calling them snakes, offspring of the serpent. And Jesus said the same thing too when he talked to the Pharisees and, and, the, and the teachers of the law. He said, you are of your father, the devil. So this division of this line here begins right here with Genesis 3.15 and runs the rest of the way through Scripture with those who are faithful to God's covenant and those who are unfaithful to God's covenant. Eve becomes the mother of all the living. And this, of course, is a continuation of the picture that we saw with Adam and Eve, Eve being the church. Eve is the church. The first Adam, 
last Adam, the first Eve, the last Eve. And she is the one who brings life to her children, just as church, the church is the mother of all believers. So follow that prophetic pattern through here and you'll see how this is really dealing with the separation of these two lines. Now the last line of verse 15 reverts back to the singular. What we have first is the offspring of the serpent, the offspring of the woman generally. And then the very last line, it goes to specific. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so the promise narrows down to one individual, a, a promised one, and speaking specifically of Satan, the serpent. Now to get to how that plays out, this pattern of Genesis 3.15 is really at the base and the background of a lot of stuff throughout the Old Testament and then of course the New Testament as well. But all you have to do is follow the thread of the serpent through the Scripture because all the Bible is written with this prophecy in mind. For example, if you remember, there was a snake lifted up on a pole in the wilderness. And God sent the snakes to curse Israel because they began grumbling in the wilderness. And these vipers came out and started biting and killing. Their poison began killing Israel. And God told Moses to put a snake up on a pole and anyone who could look to that snake would be saved and realize that what Moses did with a bronze serpent is not like the little picture on the side of the ambulance exactly where you had the snake coiled up on the, on the pole. That's kind of the paramedic symbol. Moses' serpent on a pole is actually impaled. It is like it is uh, skewered. It's a dead snake. That's the picture there that you get from what's going on because actually they used poles to impale people back then and hang them on a tree. So it's not exactly like you, you see, but it's a, it's a dirty, ugly picture of the death of the snake. Looking at the death of the snake by faith leads to life. So it becomes a physical picture here in the, in the desert of what was, of course, to come with Jesus Christ. Of course, you also have in the book of Judges, you have Jael and Sisera. Jael is the woman who put the tent peg through the temple of Sisera while he was sleeping. And who was Sisera? You go back and you read that story in Judges. It's very interesting because Sisera is the commander of the armies that tormented Israel. He was the one, the one leader. And the woman pierced his head with a tent peg. And of course, the, the text in Judges goes on to say it gives, that that gave the land peace for 40 years. But Isaiah the prophet, and I'm going to go, be going back to Isaiah an awful lot because I see so much Genesis in Isaiah. It's, it's kind of hard to miss now, but... Isaiah the prophet tells us when this prophecy would be fulfilled. Turn to Isaiah chapter 27. And actually, I'm going to start back a little bit in chapter 26. But it's Isaiah chapter 27. Verse 21 of chapter 26 says, See, the Lord is coming out of His dwelling to punish the people of the earth for their sins. The earth will disclose the blood shed upon her. She will conceal her slain no longer. That's the exact same phraseology that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 23, all the righteous blood shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah will be held on this generation. And then so Isaiah goes on and says, in that day, speaking of Christ's day, the Lord will punish with his sword his fierce, great and powerful sword, Leviathan the gliding serpent, Leviathan the coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. In that day, Sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it by day and night so that no one may harm it. I am not angry. If only there were briars and thorns confronting me. 
I would march against them in battle. I would set them all on fire or else let them come to me for refuge. Let them make peace with me. Yes, let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with its fruit. Now in this text, briars and thorns are used as symbols of unbelievers set against God's ways. Continuing in verse 12, In that day, the Lord will thresh from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, O Israelites, will be gathered up one by one. Jesus talked about the gathering of the elect in Matthew 24. God will send His angels to the four corners of the earth and gather His elect. And in that day, a great trumpet will sound. Those who were perishing in Assyria and those who were exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Israel. And so we have this prophecy of the trumpet, the gathering of the elect, the extension of Jacob to fill all the world with fruit. Again, the garden theme. talks about a, a vineyard, just like the garden in Genesis. And there's time statements all through here about when this punishment on Leviathan, the gliding serpent, would take place. It's in the time of Christ. It's in the first century. And that, of course, takes us to Jesus. If you've seen Mel Gibson's movie of the Passion of the Christ, you'll remember that the movie opens up with a snake in the grass, right? The snake goes back and forth and all of a sudden, a man's foot steps on the head of the snake. And that's how the movie opens. It's drawn straight out of Genesis chapter 3 and the promise of the Gospel to come. But it really was the crucifixion. It was at the crucifixion that we see the act which fulfills, firstly, Genesis 3.15. So turn with me to John 19. We'll see actually some imagery in John that alludes to the head of the serpent. Indirect. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. The place of the skull. They called it that because it looked like a skull. And so what you have with the crucifixion, what's going on in the crucifixion, I believe this is graphic for those Jews who understood what was going on and for those who would remember back on it later who saw it, is you have the skull, the hill, being symbolic of the serpent's head. And you have the cross being placed on top of that skull and its head being pierced by the cross. I think that's why John found that so fitting to include that in the crucifixion. But that's not really the end because that's really the bridegroom's aspect of defeating the serpent. We actually have a family victory here as well. Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And when we read this, I think we've talked about James being an application of Genesis 2 and 3 and the temptation. 1 John being an application of the temptation. Well, look at what Paul does. When we read Genesis 16, remember back to what we've looked at with all of the things in the garden, the temptation and the fall and everything else. Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Wasn't it smooth talk that the serpent deceived the naive Eve in the garden? Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. There's a good and evil thing from the garden being applied again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so the bride itself, along with her husband, crushes the head of the serpent. And Paul says that this is going to take place soon. So that really finishes the job. The ultimate crushing of Satan. In Christ, the serpent has been slain. There is no more sting of death because the enemy that used to strike God's people is dead. We might call this the death of death. So let's continue in verse 16 of Genesis 3. Watch how these themes play their way out through the rest of Scripture. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Notice the curse on the woman involves the increase of childbearing pain. Which, of course, if you want to read this literally, it assumes, therefore, that pain in childbirth was actually a part of God's original creation because the pain is increased. And actually, if you think about it biologically, the pain in childbirth is actually related to the enjoyment of the act that makes babies. So there is a connection here. And we, we, would, we would all understand rightly that God made that act enjoyable in the first place. But it's very difficult to imagine how you would have birth without pain from the beginning. I mean, really, do you, do you have like a door on the belly where when it's time, you just open the door and, and then because of the curse, there's no more door? I mean, the curse is increasing of pain. Right, Amy? I mean, that's... These are the kinds of things that you try to think about if you're trying to read it biologically. Notice also that the curse on the woman is that she will be, have a desire for her husband, yet her husband will rule over her. I see prophetic in that the entire history of the Old Testament. Old Covenant Israel persisted in rebellion against God, her husband. Yet God ruled over her. And so if we look at that in terms of covenant history as the Old Covenant, this desire of the woman to have over her husband, and what we see happening all through the Old Testament with the woman, the rebellious wife, always trying to get the lead of God, and yet God always reigning and ruling over her, you actually can see that the curse is removed in Christ because Eve, the true church, always submits to Christ her Lord and husband. In fact, I would say that it would not even necessarily be too great to say that there is no more pain in childbirth because of the church. The church births her children of God by conversion, by faith. And that is really how there is no more pain in, in children being born into the kingdom. The daughters of Eve have been redeemed. Verse 17 To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, though through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. There is no end to the trouble that is caused when Christians read this biologically rather than covenantally or prophetically. First of all, it must be pointed out that Adam was called to work the soil and keep the garden back in chapter 2 before the fall. Work is not the curse. In fact, I would say that the point of the curse 
is not even the introduction brand new of thorns, of physical thorns. And actually, Augustine said a lot about this in his stuff on Genesis. The, the last thing that he wrote before the city of God, he wrote on Genesis. And he explained it this way. Commenting on this text, he said, we should not jump to the conclusion that it was only then that these plants came forth from the earth, for it could be that in view of the many advantages found in different kinds of seed, that these plants had a place on earth without afflicting man in any way. Now this interpretation does not contradict what is said in the words, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth for you, if we understand that the earth in producing them before the fall did not do so to afflict man, but rather to provide proper nourishment of certain animals, since some animals find soft, dry thistles a pleasant and nourishing food. I do not mean that these plants once grew in other places and only afterwards in the fields where man was planted and harvested his crops. They were in the same place before and after, formerly not for man, afterwards for man. So, when I say that the issue here is not about the springing up new of physical thorns, other people have said this in church history. It's, It's not that far out but there is a symbolic aspect here to those thorns out there and they're to teach something and they're part of God's good creation for the reasons that they they teach this and that was the genius of Augustine he knew that the Bible isn't talking about biology or science so what is the curse on the land and these thorns how are they to be read prophetically or covenantally turn to Isaiah 32 and we'll see how Isaiah uses the imagery Isaiah 32 beginning in verse 9 You women who are so complacent, rise up and listen to me. You daughters who feel secure, hear what I have to say. In little more than a year, you who feel secure will tremble. The grape harvest will fail, and the harvest of fruit will not come. Tremble, you complacent women. Shudder, you daughters who feel secure. Strip off your clothes. Put sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vines, and for the land of my people, a land overgrown with thorns, and briars. Yes, mourn for all houses of merriment. For this city of revelry, the fortress will be abandoned, the noisy city deserted, citadel and watchtower will become a wasteland forever, the delight of donkeys a pasture for flocks, till the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. What's the prophet talking about? Pentecost. And the desert becomes a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. Justice will dwell in the desert and righteousness live in the fertile field. The fruit of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places, in secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. Though hail flattens the forest and the city is leveled completely, how blessed you will be sowing your seed by every stream and letting your cattle and donkeys range free. What is the land of blessing here that Isaiah is talking about? It's the land of the new covenant. Who are these thorns and thistles? They're unbelievers, covenant breakers, who knew God and yet rejected God in their rebellious hearts. So the curse on the ground here in Genesis 3, the painful toil by the sweat of the brow, actually we see the same reference in Isaiah 65 where in this new heavens and new earth they will no longer toil. Straight out of Genesis. All of this stuff are all related to the bondage of sin in life under the old covenant. And what you have here, and you see it playing out in the subsequent history in in Genesis 4, that these thorns now begin to grow in the land. Cain, Lamech, the ungodly in Noah's day. We actually had that extension going on 
in the ministry of Christ where Jesus gave a parable about the wheat and the tares. These are all connected and they all come straight from Genesis chapter 3. So the curse on Adam, even the death sentence pronounced on Adam, I would say, really is not dealing with biological death because biological death is part of God's creation. It serves His purposes. He warned Adam and Eve about death. They needed some way of symbolically seeing what that was from the very beginning. The prophecy is about a covenant world. And the entire account of Adam and Eve assumes that Adam and Eve were just like us. Adam and Eve were just like us, living in a world just like ours. Why do I say that? Well, let's continue reading in verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living, following up on the offspring of the woman promised in Genesis 3:14 and 15. The Lord God made the garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, Knowing good and evil, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Why did God banish them from the garden? Because the garden was the source of the tree of life to sustain the life of Adam and Eve. So Adam and Eve were not made to live forever apart from the garden, apart from the tree of life. They were potentially mortal through obedience, just like us, through the obedience of Jesus Christ from the very beginning. But biological death is not a result of the sin here because biological death is assumed by the account. I think you can see that in other parts of the text as well because if you think about it, If Adam and Eve were naturally immortal until the fall, why did they need to eat? Eating presupposes living off of something else, right? And that was actually what Augustine said too. Augustine put it this way, and I want you to think carefully about how this plays out because we're going to talk about Jesus on the cross here in a second. There's a connection here. But Augustine says, it is difficult to explain how man was created immortal at the same time in company with the other living creatures was given for food, the seed-bearing plants, the fruit trees, and the green crops. If it was by sin that he was made mortal, surely before sinning, he did not need such food since his body could not corrupt for lack of it. They had to eat to live. That, that was before the fall. And Augustine is saying that's mean, that means that, that biological death was there, just like we know it today. He goes on to say, He was mortal, speaking of Adam, by the constitution of his natural body, and he was immortal, by the gift of his creator. For if it was a natural body he had, it was certainly mortal because it was able to die. And that's been talking before the fall here. At the same time, immortal by reason of the fact that it was able not to die through obedience. Only a spiritual being is immortal by the virtue of the fact that it cannot possibly die. And this condition is promised to us in the resurrection. Consequently, Adam's body, a natural and therefore immortal body, which by justification would become spiritual and therefore truly immortal, in reality by sin was not made mortal, because it was that already, but rather a dead thing which it could have, would have been able not to be if Adam had not sinned. It's a very complex quote. So what Augustine is saying here is that this biological death of our world is normal. God made the world that way. And this death here is something different and the implications of that. But this curse on Adam is a death sentence. 
And this curse on Adam is a death sentence that God promised to Adam, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And what is the death sentence? To be cast out of the presence of God. Adam was booted out of the garden and that was the death sentence. This covenant separation where God's presence was specially experienced in the garden, Adam was driven out from that and separated from God. And that is the death sentence here that is the part of the judgment that God pronounced on them. Now, I haven't, if I haven't lost you yet, you might ask a question related to the last Adam. Didn't Jesus die physically on the cross for sin? How, if we're talk, not talking about biological death, I mean, think through this. If we're not talking about biological death here in the garden, biological death is normal, part of God's good creation, part of the creation that God uses to teach spiritual truth from the very beginning. If biological death is normal here, then how is it that Jesus Christ dying on the cross could pay for sin? Well, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus age while he was on earth? I think it's very clear that he did age while he was on earth. We read about that in the ministry in the uh, Gospels. But aging is a process of death. So you could, you could actually extend it further. And I could ask the question, if Jesus Christ did not go to the cross, would he have died a natural death? Remember, Jesus was given a body just like ours, took on flesh just like his brethren, flesh and blood. Would Jesus have died a natural death as a sinless man if he did not go to the cross? Now, I guess you could say theoretically, well, he wouldn't be doing the will of his Father, so he'd be a sinner at that point. So the speculation gets to be problems, but it gets the point across. I believe he would have died a natural death. I believe, death, I believe Jesus Christ would have experienced a death without sin because death is a natural part of being human from the very beginning. But that raises the question, well, how did he atone for sin by dying biologically on the cross? Jesus died on the cross for sins because he died under the law. And the law gave the death penalty as a shadow of the ultimate death penalty that we see in the garden. The casting out of the garden is the ultimate death penalty. Remember that the law, though, is only a shadow and biological death is only a sign or a picture. Biological death cannot be the penalty for sin in the garden or even on the cross only. Because if that's true, then every man pays for his own sin at death because every man dies. I mean, how do you have a ground for afterlife judgment if the penalty of sin is biological death? Because every man, when he dies, he pays the penalty for his sin. So, so there's more to this on the cross than the biological death. It, it was to fulfill the law and the law was given... Of course, the death penalty in the law was given for breaking, breaking God's covenant. But did you know that Jesus died that ultimate death on the cross? The very same ultimate death that we see in Genesis 3, Jesus dies on the cross. People don't see it. Turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see what happened to Jesus on the cross? When God laid the sins of His people on Jesus at the cross, and the Reformed, in Reformed doctrine, this is the doctrine of imputation, where the imputation of the righteousness of Christ is imputed to His people, and the imputation of the sins of His people is imputed to Jesus Christ on the cross. At that moment on the cross, when the sins were laid on Jesus Christ, the relationship between father and son was broken. And Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we have a direct parallel back to the garden because 
just as the disobedience and the sin of Adam broke the relationship between him and his father, so the sins of his people laid on Jesus Christ on the cross breaks the relationship between Jesus Christ and his father. In fact, it's through this, through the experience of this, that Adam and Eve are reconciled back to God. I mean, remember, throughout all the ministry of Christ, we get this continual teaching, I and my Father are one. Jesus Christ is one with His Father. And when that sin was laid upon Him, that relationship was broken. And He was forsaken. Some theologians said, God turned His face away from Christ because He could not look on sin. This is the ultimate death that Jesus experienced on the cross that brings Adam and all the living children of Eve representing the church back into fellowship and presence of God. So here we have the end of the story of the original garden in Genesis. The rest of the Bible is given to tell a story about how God's people get past those cherubim, get past those flaming swords, back into God's garden. And of course, I'll let you in on a secret. We're already there. We see that at the end of Revelation. But do you want to know why Christians cannot see that we are already there in the garden partaking of the tree of life in Jesus Christ? They can't see it because they read this story in the garden biologically rather than covenantally. There's now that $29 million creation museum in Kentucky. The latest figure I heard was $33 million actually. But they consciously present the biological view in Genesis and that has connections to everything else that they talk about in the, in the Creation Museum about the future, about what they expect to come in the past. And they know that given their interpretation of Genesis 2 and 3, that we are not in the new heavens, new earth. How do we know that? Because there are thorns. How do we know that? Because childbirth is still painful. I sweat when I work. Look at all the death around you. And these particular things that are being presented in the Creation Museum are really the effect of a Christian culture that lives by sight and not by faith. May it not be so of us. May we dwell in the blessed promised land of the living forever. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You, Lord, for what You've done for us in Jesus Christ. We pray that You would bless us and guide us. Teach us Your ways and teach us how to lead our families and guide our families in the truth. Lord, we pray that You would bless the day's activities of the fellowship. We pray that You would bless our time of, of, of fellowship and communion that we have today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.